Welcome to Podcast Recovery. We are your hosts, Eric V. and David O. Podcast Recovery is a forerunner in digitally accessible addiction recovery support. We provide ease and convenience to any and all seeking a message of recovery and hope. By broadcasting the stories of recovering addicts, we act as a complement to all other recovery services. We exist to create a global foundation platform so that any addict may hear a message of strength and hope. We contribute education and awareness by highlighting the diversity in the lives of recovering addicts to show that one addict helping another truly works. Today, we are joined by my co-host, David O. How How's are you it? doing today? I'm, I'm fantastic. It's great. Uh, where are you from, David? I'm uh, born and raised in Columbia, Maryland. Cool. Uh, when were you first introduced to recovery? Uh, I was first introduced to recovery in... Uh, goodness, what year was that? Uh, probably about 2010, but I didn't get clean until 2012. Okay. And how long have you been clean? I've been clean for five and a half years now. Awesome. And uh, without further ado... Um, David will now share his experience, strength, and hope with us. All right. Fantastic. Um, yeah, I guess this is uh, episode one of two for uh, Get to Meet Your Hosts. Get to Know Your Hosts. Um, actually, I was thinking uh, about that question. When did when was I introduced to recovery? Um, I always, for a long time, I've had knowledge of, like, other fellowships um but it was probably many years ago that i actually started to become aware of the the separate fellowships and that there was actually like a greater network of recovering addicts out there um but we'll get to that in a minute uh so I was, like I said, I was uh, born and raised in Columbia, Maryland. Um, I have four sisters, and I'm the only boy, so that's instantly, uh, that's probably strike one in my life right there of difficulties. Um, Number two, I had a very um, abusive and uh, absentee father. So he was in and out of the picture constantly. Um, and that that was always hard growing up. I mean, if if you ever Google uh, Columbia, Maryland, you'll, you'll see many pretty stereotypical pictures of uh, what a middle-class American suburb is. You'll be like, oh, we, we, you want to find stock photos for a... a American suburb, Columbia, Maryland is it. Um, so there were all these very fairly wealthy families all around me, up and up and down, lining every street. Uh, all my friends in elementary school had like the whole uh, complete family. Uh, mom and dad had good jobs. Um, they had one brother, one sister, two cats. Um, a dog, a white picket fence, all that good stuff. And I didn't have that. 
So instantly, from a very young age, I like started to feel different than everybody around me, which is sort of a common thing that I've found with most addicts that I've run into. Is that at some point, um, whether it's actual or um, we create it in our minds, we have this idea that we're different than what we see around us, and it causes some sort of animosity. Um, so, but I'll stick with me. Uh, it really did um, create like a a rift between me and other people. Like I thought I was different. Um, my family was different than everybody else's. I didn't fit in, and um, some of my some of my friends in elementary school even let me know that, like, because um, we didn't have a very organized household. Um, it was kind of messy because, like, my mom was always working uh, crazy hours to provide. Like, whenever my dad was there, there were horrible, like, loud fights that ended up spilling out onto the porch, into the front yard, and into the street. And then it, it was it was just, like, blatantly obvious that we were, like, the Adams family on the block. And I knew it at a very young age. Um... And then my older sister, uh, who shall remain nameless for her anonymity, um, started getting into her own addiction at a very young age um, when she was in high school. And she's about five years older than me, so I was probably uh, eight, nine, ten at the time watching, watching her spiral into her own addiction. And... Um, after a few years in recovery, I've really started to like pull a few of the layers back on the, on my own personal onion, and really see that I had um, addictive traits before drugs ever came into the picture. Um, I was a huge I have a huge sweet tooth. I always have ever since I was a little kid. I loved uh, Cadbury eggs and and chocolate and candy and just basic stuff that a little kid needs. But I would, like, army crawl into my mom's bedroom to root through her purse or I'd steal from her change jar so I could run up to the local CVS and buy candy. So I was willing to, like, steal from my mom at a very young age to get what I want because it made me feel good. I liked candy, so I wanted as much of it as I could get. So I stole from my mom for it. Um Clearly, that's like an addict behavior. Like a five, six, seven-year-old probably shouldn't be doing that. Like they probably shouldn't feel that it's okay to steal from their parents to get something that's going to make them feel good. Um, so then I'm seeing my, my sister go into her own addiction. Like I'm feeling animosity. I was also dealing with a lot of uh, emotional and psychological uh, and physical trauma from my dad. So, I don't know, around, around uh, 11, 11 or so, like I started uh, seeking stuff outside of myself to, uh, I guess, like, to start off with, it really started as, like, an experiment. Like, oh, my mom smokes these cigarettes all the time. Let me steal some cigarettes from, from my mom. Because it wasn't a giant leap from change out of her purse or dollars out of her purse to buy candy to just go into the freezer and steal a pack of Carlton's from her. So I started doing that. And then shortly after that, there, there would be like Malibu, uh, chilling in the, 
in the like the liquor cabinet or the um, the pantry. So I would I would take her bottle of Malibu, and then instantly at like age twelve, I guess it's like f- fifth sixth grade. Um, I'm now the cool kid who can get cigarettes and alcohol for all my friends. So now I start to feel a part of like those drugs and those like I mean those the the sneaky drugs, the nicotine and the alcohol. Um, start to make me feel a part of. They they really like counteracted that idea that I was different. Um, people wanted what I had at that point, and uh, so I got excited. I got excited about that. And then not too long after I was the kid with alcohol and alcohol and cigarettes, um, some of the older kids like that my sisters knew because I was I was third in line in my family. I've, I had three older sisters and one younger sister, so I I, I sort of knew some of the older people um, around the neighborhood. And by that point, I knew who the bad kids in the neighborhood were, so I could go to them, and they turned me on to marijuana so by like eight by around like age 12 13 i i had started experimenting with weed so now i'm stealing cigarettes i'm stealing alcohol and i'm buying weed and of course a kid that age can't work he doesn't have a job so how does he get money for it he steals things so i was a little i was a little klepto I, I was a little thief, and I, I would trade either, like, my sister's CDs for, like, a Nick bag or a dime bag or whatever, and um, I was off to the races, so, it, like, and all of this stuff is, like, huge red flags for, like, stuff that, that was going to come down the road, and um, one of my favorite sayings is, has always been, um, like, uh, the fish in the bowl doesn't know that it's wet. Like, I was just so immersed in my own life that I couldn't see what was around me. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, so, like, all, all those, like, red flags that to anybody on the outside of the fishbowl could clearly see that, like, this kid is in trouble and uh, um, he needs help. Like, I, I knew that all those red flags were there, sort of. Like, I knew I needed help. I knew I needed guidance. But, and... I was confused about why any of the adults in my life couldn't see it or like never really confronted it. Like, um, but like my mom was doing her thing. My dad was doing his thing. They like both did the best they can. Um, and, uh, teachers in school, like guidance counselors. Cause like I started acting up in school. um, because up until that point, I'd been a pretty model student, you know. Um, started acting up in school, started skipping school. Um, shit, I started going in into school high at like in like eighth grade, um, which was it was pretty ballsy. I guess I was like a ballsy little kid, which is weird because I'm I'm kind of short, a little skinny, white, unathletic kid. Ballsy. Yeah, that's pretty ballsy for a kid to be going into middle school high. And, like, I'm sure that, uh, I don't know. I don't know what the teachers thought. Um, but things just kept progressing. Um, uh, got a job at, like, age 14 at the local ice rink. And even though I never, like, I didn't have any bills, uh, to pay, I, I never managed to save a dollar 
of mm. that. And, like, I didn't have anybody to, like, show me, like, hey, maybe you should open up a bank account or something like this. I didn't know if I – I didn't even know if I could open up a bank account at age 14. But, like, I forged my parents' signature for the uh, the work release, like, thing that you had to get from school. And literally that job was 100% to – fuel my like my drug habit like I was like I'm going to do drugs with all of this money and that's what I did um and soon it became I'm gonna start dealing drugs because then I then I get drugs for free um theoretically I, it, it, theoretically exactly I, you're, of course you're getting high on your own supply and like you're you're making you're making like pennies on the ounce or whatever um but yeah, I, I had the grand idea that I was like, oh, okay, everybody else is going to pay for my drugs and I'm going to get all the extras. And it, I don't know, it, I guess it works for somebody. It never really worked for me. Like it was barely staying afloat and I was just always throwing in my own money. Um, but somehow like I, I got out of high school, like I graduated. Um, ooh, rewind a little bit. My first, like... I started getting arrested. I got arrested twice in high school. One time I was actually in a stolen car, unbeknownst to me. And that was, I think I was 15 at the time. I didn't know the car was stolen. Um, my friends just came and picked me up at like 1 a.m. And then we went joyriding, just smoking weed, drinking, having a good time. Then when they went to go drop me off, uh, cops were there. That it, it was a shit show. My parents... Uh, my mom was like, oh, my God, I had no idea all this was happening. And what's crazy was I was literally arrested 50 feet from my house. Like, he had pulled over right in, like, the little cul-de-sac right next to my house. And I was like, fuck, if my, com- if my mom comes out here right now, I, like, my mom's going to get arrested for beating her kid in front of the, the police. But I, whatever. It, it was unbelievable. Um, so that was probably the first time I got... Um, introduced to some form of recovery because I had, obviously I had to go to court because uh, I was in possession of an illegal substance. Uh, so I had my, yeah, my first possession charge when I was 15. And yeah, I was sentenced to uh, community service and uh, addictions counseling. Like I had to go to a, a group, which I didn't oh, like. The place across the street from the mall? Yes, hmm. yes, the place across the street from the Columbia Mall, which uh, remained oh, nameless. Yeah, yes, I mean, nice facility, nice nice people work there. Um, uh, it didn't work for me at the time because I was completely unwilling to listen. Like I, I didn't think I had a problem. Like it was just like some weed, alcohol, and some cigarettes, and I accidentally ended up in a stolen car. That's not my fault. I didn't steal the car. Anyway, um, so that was probably the first time I got. Uh, introduced to some sort of recovery or addiction support and I didn't take it seriously I didn't care I was a 15 year old kid any most 15 year old guys uh are idiots and I'm sorry if you're a 15 year old guy listening to this I'm not calling you an idiot but you'll find out later in life that you're not at the best place um and neither was I because it was my first opportunity to really open my eyes and say, hey, these people are trying to help you, and I ignored it. Um, continued two years later, I got arrested again at age 17, blah, blah, blah. 
And literally the, the exact same thing happened. I got a little community service, and I was sent back to the exact same little uh, group across from the Columbia Mall, and nothing happened. It, like, I got a slap on the wrist, so, like, I was like, oh, this is it? This is all I'm, I'm getting? And it really, um, it kind of enabled me in a sense because I thought I was getting away with stuff. Like, I didn't really have to quit. I didn't really have to do anything. Um, I had to quit for like a couple weeks so I could take a piss test at the end of the course, which was like 60 days long or whatever. Um, and I beat both of those. Like I, I basically in my mind, I like beat both those charges. Um, but they were juvenile charges. So they were going away anyway. I, so I get out of high school. I do about a half a semester of, uh, community college at my local county. And, um, I wasn't ready for it. Like I, I had, I had no interest in being there. But like all my friends were going to college and they're doing something, and I just had no plans. I had no direction, and I was eighteen at this point. I had a car, and I just didn't give a fuck. I didn't give a fuck. I didn't get good grades, so I did like one or two semesters there, and then I was off to the races. I had a girlfriend. At, uh, at the time, like, and started basically mooching off her to some extent because I had gotten her into drugs and alcohol, um, in the process. We had been dating for a few years by that point, and her parents would pay for her apartment because she was actually going to, like, University of Maryland, and she actually had, like, a future, and I was kind of, like, a leech, just sort of, I was just a little parasite in her life, like, uh, looking at it now. Um, really using this girl, uh, so I could get a free ride, honestly. Um, I feel bad about saying that, um, because, like, on, I, I did have feelings for her, because I was with her for so long, and, uh, I, I knew she was a good person, and she actually went on to, like, do, like, good things with her life. Um, but, obviously, that is after me. Uh, uh, it wasn't... I don't know, it was a couple of years, but I was, uh, I, th- I think it was right around age 20, she basically got fed up with my shit, and was like, um, well, I'd, I had moved back into my old house, because my parents had vanished uh, to an Indian reservation, because they were going to become back, they were going to go back to their hippie roots. And they were trying to sell their house to my oldest sister. So she was like, oh, why don't you come stay here? And so I was like, oh, cool. I get to go back to the house that um, I was born in. Yes, I was born in the house I grew up in. I was a, I was a home birth. Just so by, we get by choice? By choice, yes. My, my mom was a super hippie, and she's also a nurse practitioner. So she pretty much she knew what she was doing. Uh-huh. Um had a midwife and everything. I was born on a waterbed um, hmm. at home. So that's pretty cool. Um, so anyway. Sounds uh, like the 80s. It was the 80s, 100%. That, that was the 80s. Uh, so she, they vamoosed to an Indian reservation in New Mexico. They were going to sell the house to my oldest sister. Oldest sister said, hey, come live back at home at your original house. So I was like, awesome. This is great. Uh, 
So I come back at age 20 and I'm like living the dream for about six months. And then my oldest sister is like trying to fix up the house and then figures out that, oh, my mom hadn't paid the mortgage in X amount of time. So they're going to foreclose on the house. So, yes, I had moved out from this girlfriend's place. I was like, hey, I'm going to live here and we're still going to stay together. So I find out from my sister that uh, the place I'm, I've been staying for the last six months is getting foreclosed on. So I'm getting kicked out again. And then that girlfriend went back to her parents. Her parents hated me. So I couldn't stay with her. And so through a series of events and me continuing to use, uh, I became homeless. And like my, my drinking and drug use had accelerated at this point. I had gotten into hallucinogens. Um, I had dabbled in pills and powders at this point. Um, and then... Uh, now I'm homeless. My oldest sister, who was going to have this house, now doesn't have this house. So she has to go live with her uh, family and her in-laws. And so I, I have nowhere to stay. My, my girlfriend's back at her parents. And all I have at this point is a Pontiac vibe at age 20. So I'm living in a Pontiac vibe. And that continued uh for two years and like i by this point i had gotten arrested another couple times for more possession charges i got a fireworks illegal fireworks charge i had gotten underage drinking charge um and like i've actually like timed it out i was pretty much in handcuffs like once a year as of age 18 to 25 I was not, hmm. yeah, I was not good at what I did. Mm -mm. So after I became homeless, I'm like, I'm couch surfing. I'm, I'm still selling even higher quantities of drugs. I'm doing higher quantities of drugs. I'm starting to get into new drugs. Um, and my life is just absolutely going nowhere because I'm just constantly on probation. Uh, I'm in and out of jails. I'm getting in bar fights. I'm living in a Pontiac vibe. But for some, somehow I like maintained employment through all this. Um, and then, so for about two years, I was couch surfing and living in a Pontiac vibe. And then, uh, I see one of my old buddies at a gas station and, uh, well, he's, he's dead now. So I can, I can say his name. His name is Brandon. Yeah, I met uh, Brandon at a gas station randomly one day, and like I start talking, he's still doing drugs, I'm still doing drugs, he's selling drugs, I'm selling drugs, and he's like, hey man, where are you living? I was like, I am living in that car right over there, and he's like, no, that's not going to do, man, uh, come and live with me. I was like, where are you living? He says, I'm living on top of a bar in Catonsville. I say, no shit. <laughs> That sounds pretty cool. I'm 21 at this point, 22, 22. Um, and he's like, yeah, dude, we'll have a blast. Come live above a bar with me. So I go 
live above this bar with him. And it is a tiny little complete shithole in the middle of Catonsville for like nothing. I think we were paying like 300 bucks a month. Like it was nothing. And he had gotten into way harder drugs. I, I had met up with girls who were into way harder drugs. So by this point, I was uh, doing copious amounts of hallucinogens, lots of cocaine, lots of Percocets. Uh, we were going to EDM festivals and getting DMT and acid and all these things. And I was literally just dumping cocktails of drugs in me constantly because... My parents were out of the picture. My family was entirely out of the picture. The girlfriend who I had been with since like age 16 was out of the picture. Um, I had nobody but this Pontiac vibe and this shitty apartment above a bar. And we were drinking all the time. Um, and like we, we were super paranoid. We were, we were just... We had some of those little mini bikes, the little pocket motorcycle things. The and, 50s? Yeah, the little 50s that, like, no human adult should be riding. But we were. We were zipping around Catonsville with backpacks full of drugs, dropping them off to people um, because we thought it was inconspicuous and slick and cops wouldn't chase us, which, honestly, they didn't. Like, we just... We're, we're running a, a, a drug flop house for a couple years um, until, and, and meanwhile, this whole time, like I, I was, I became unemployed through the, the two years living at, uh, living in the Pontiac vibe. And then Brandon has this random job opportunity, which I don't really know how he got it, but either way we were, um, process servers, we were serving people with subpoenas and warrants and eviction notices. And through that process, our our, um, our bosses were Baltimore City cops who also worked SWAT, but they had this side business where they were a processing company for legal papers. And so Brandon and I were doing this, and in while we were doing this... Uh, we had to get licensed as private investigators in order to do it. So Brandon and I are literally high out of our minds 24-7 with badges, private investigator badges around our necks, zipping around Baltimore County, Anne Arundel County, all over central Maryland, dropping off subpoenas and warrants to people while high as fuck. And it was terrible like it, it it's that sounds amazing it like it it was amazing just from like a theatrical point of view it's it like it's an amazing story to tell and i like obviously i don't regret it because it's like where it took where it got to me in the end of the story but and at the time it was fairly ridiculous because we could be high as shit wearing these badges and whoever John Doe uh, recipient of these papers wouldn't want to cooperate with us so we would call the cops on them the cops would show up and force these people to receive these papers be served by us high as fuck on cocaine 
it, it was insane. It was at, like my life had turned into absolute insanity, and it's it, it's a script you couldn't write. Like it's because nobody would believe it, and it's crazy that 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 was my life, and um, somehow like obviously a two two and a half years of running that hard with somebody. Uh, developed some sort of animosity along the way. We split, and then I'm homeless again. I meet up with a girl in Philadelphia. I'm dealing drugs up in Philadelphia. I'm moving them. I'm I'm crossing state lines because I was going to a dealer down in D.C., getting shit from him, moving it all the way up to Philly. Philly drugs had different shit, so I was bringing it back down to D.C. and Baltimore, and I was a drug runner. I was a drug mule and in the process, I got a, um, I got another possession charge in Maryland and another possession charge in Philadelphia, um, through the whole court process, which is a pain in the ass in Philadelphia. You don't just like in Maryland, you have one court date, you go, your shit's done, whatever it is. In Philadelphia, in Philadelphia, where it was, I had five separate court date court dates. Like, the first one was uh, just a charges reading. That was it. That's all they did. Like, I went up there, and they read my charge. Like, a judge read my charges out loud in a courtroom and was like, okay, we'll see you in a month for your arraignment. And I was like, oh, what the hell? I was like, this isn't it? And they were like, no, this is not. this is not trial. This is just your charges reading. So I was like, okay, huh. round two. I have my arraignment. My arraignment uh, is the judge tells me, oh, this is how many, uh, this is what you're possibly facing if you are found guilty. And I'm like, wait, this isn't the trial? They're like, no, this is just telling your potential outcome. And I was like, what the hell is the point of this? And then they're like, okay, we'll see you in another month for your pretrial. My pretrial? What the fuck is this? It's insanity. Meanwhile, every time I'm paying court fees... Um, so needless to say, I have a huge resentment Obviously. against the city can... of Philadelphia and Pennsylvania. Oh, not the city. I do like Philadelphia. Philadelphia's I, I a love great Philadelphia. city. But it's the, grown on me. But the way Pennsylvania's court system is set up sucks. Don't blame Philly for that. I won't blame Philly. I apologize, Philly. If you're listening in Philly, I apologize, but your court system sucks. Um, so I missed, in the, in the process of these five ridiculous court dates, I miss one of them. And they put out a warrant for my arrest. I then get uh, arrested again in Maryland, and I figured it's just going to be another slap on the wrist. It's another possession charge, whatever. I'll be in and out in 24 hours. I'll get out on my own recog, and we'll go back to using same as always. This time I'm seeing the uh, commissioner in Howard County, uh, jail and they're like hey uh you have a detainer from the state of pennsylvania i say what is that and they're like that's where we have to hold you until they come and get you and i was like fuck because i had never done more than like 24 hours in a jail cell ever i had done some bullpens and some central bookings and that was it um always released on my own recog because i'm a semi uh loquacious individual so i was always able to like oh no i live here i have 
permanent employment here. I'm not a flight risk, which clearly I was. Um, so I spent eight days in Howard County Jail waiting for um, Philly to come and get me. And what was crazy is like, I was like, because you get to talk to cops and everything, and there was like, oh, there's a statute of limitations. If, if Philly doesn't come and get you in eight days, then their charges are automatically dropped and you get to go home. I was like, oh shit, this is awesome. So the morning of day number eight, I'm, I'm feeling great. I'm like, oh man, I just did this easy, this easy week of jail time. I watched the Ravens games on a flat screen in jail, whatever, cool. And that morning, just I get the, the knock on my cell, uh, like my cell bars or whatever. And they're like, hey, uh, David, pack your shit. You're going to Philly. And I was like, oh, no. I was like, I was going to be out at 6 p.m. They were like, nope, you're going to Philly. So I get shipped up to Philly for another week of jail. And that was a whole nother animal. Uh, Howard County Jail, which is where Columbia is. So it was a pretty nice, pretty nice jail. Philly jail, not fun. Not fun at all. Uh, I was stuck in a bullpen for the first 72 hours I was in jail with 20 other guys. Uh, There was no bathroom. There was no running water. Uh, We got shitty food. We got what anybody who's been in a jail is called a sweaty meat sandwich. A nice two pieces of white bread with a cold piece of bologna and a mustard packet. And that's your meal for the day. Um, And... Then I get, then I finally get put on the cell block. I'm on 22 and two, so 22 hours in my cell, two hours out. But in the meantime, like, like I I was completely out of my element at this point because they actually took me to like a real jail in Howard County. I was in with other small petty offenders. Like in this other jail, I was in with real people, and it was you've seen the show Scared Straight. Mm-hmm. That's basically what happened to me, like. I was a skinny white boy from the county, completely out of his element, in jail in Philadelphia, and I was like, I cannot do this anymore. I was like, this is not going to be my life, because if I keep doing what I'm doing, I'm I'm going to die, or I'm going to end up in jail for the rest of my life. So my mom and my little sister actually, out of nowhere, came and visited me in jail. And I'm wearing the the jumpsuit and everything, and I get to have this really moment of clarity, a, a real Hollywood moment in my life, I guess you could say, where I'm standing behind the plexiglass on the phone with my mom and my little sister on the other side of the plexiglass on their phone, and I'm talking to them in jail, and I'm bawling my eyes out. I'm crying. I'm just like, I don't want to do this anymore. I need help. Please get me out of here. I don't want to do this. So I get out of there. And for some reason, my mom had come back to Maryland and is living with my little sister. They let me into their apartment. And for the first 30 days of recovery, I completely white knuckled it. I turned over my cell phone and my car keys to my mom. Yeah. Um, Turning over my keys and my cell phone was a necessary part 
to the beginning of my recovery because I knew with those tools at my disposal, I was going to do what I knew how to do, which was get drugs and continue uh, my downward spiral in life. So I turned those things over for the first 30 days, white knuckled it. Um, I don't recommend that for anybody listening. Uh, I was very lonely. It was full. Uh, I had already, luckily I had already like detoxed in jail. So, uh, didn't have too many detox symptoms. I was still having really shitty drug dreams, all that, like wasn't sleeping, was miserable, wasn't doing anything during the day. So I knew I had to do something productive. I knew there was work that needed to be done in order to start a new life. Um, and not continue going to jail. Um, so I had old using buddies who I knew had, uh, quote unquote, bunny ears gotten out of the game. And, uh, cause I had seen them on, on social media, uh, seemingly having their shit together. Um, so one night I, get up the idea that I was like, okay, I'm going to go to one of these meetings, one of these recovery meetings that I had uh, been exposed to earlier in life. And so I like Googled it and figured out where I should go, when I should go. And it was like a midnight meeting on a Friday night or a Saturday night. And I go and my friend, oddly enough, just by sheer coincidence, my old friend and using buddy from like high school and on, um, I think it'd be fine saying, saying his name, my friend Brad was there and he, he like gave me a hug and was like, oh man, I've been really waiting to see you here. And I was like, what the fuck did that mean? Like I was, I was really indignant to that statement at the time I was like what do you think you like know something about my life that I don't and like he had been in recovery for a while so clearly yes he knew (laughs) that somebody like me needed to be here and he had gotten he had like a year or so clean at the at that point um but probably the biggest thing that I felt when I when I came to that meeting and I had my mom drive me to that meeting and like I was a wreck Like, I was a complete wreck. I don't remember, um, like, the speaker or what he said, but I knew, like, the feeling I had. I felt like I belonged. Um, I remember, like, um, some of the readings and, like, uh, some of the people sharing, talking about how they felt, and I, like, identified with those feelings, and there were... And there were actually there were actually two people that I knew from back in the day at that meeting, and they had, were getting their lives back together through these meetings. Um, so I I felt like I belonged, and I felt like this was an opportunity for me to be successful. So I started going to meet. Um, started with that midnight meeting, which was a midnight meeting on Fridays and Saturday nights. And I did that for a little while until um, these friends started convincing me to, to expand my recovery, like start start hitting other meetings, start going to like some other areas. So um, that midnight meeting was in Columbia, where like I felt comfortable, like that's where I grew up. And then I started branching out, started going to 
Ellicott City meetings and Catonsville meetings, and it like it, it was difficult. Um, and like recovery is difficult. Like it's not easy. Early recovery is not easy. Um, because bottom line, I had no idea what I was doing. No idea at all. I'm I'm in these meetings uh, with a whole a whole bunch of new people um, of all different walks of life, all different ages. Um, but we're all. But I knew that everybody was there for the same purpose was to, like to get another day clean, and I started listening to people and people. Uh, had these messages of hope of going through very similar things that I went through. Like people had uh, difficult childhoods and managed to overcome it and get clean. People were in and out of jail, managed to overcome it and get clean. Um, A lot of these addicts shared the same feelings and thoughts that I did. And... um, uh it it was really like refreshing because I had from age eleven to twenty five um I had been running on the, like this me against the world mentality, and like nobody thought like me, nobody f- like has been what I've been through, and like that constantly like pushed me away from people who were trying to help me and counselors that I kept having to go to through the courts. Um, but these people, these fellow addicts got me. They were like, um, we know who you are because we were that person too. And it, it was simultaneously scary and reassuring that like, um, I've always kind of equated it to like standing in a line for a roller coaster and you see a little nine-year-old girl who's like so super excited for this roller coaster and you see her get on the roller coaster and get off and she was so jazzed about it. And like I, I have a little bit of a fear of heights, but like I would always tell myself, I would be like, oh, if that little girl can do it, I can do it too. And it was kind of like that, like, coming into recovery. I was like, well, if that person can do it, I can do it too. And that that was really, um, it was inspiring to see all these people live a new way of life. And a lot of these people had way worse stories than I did. A lot of these people grew up in way worse neighborhoods than I did or spent more time in jail than I did. And all these people were turning around their lives and they were going to school and they were getting jobs and careers. Um, And it it, it took work. Like the fellowship part, the social part, that was was the easiest part. And then I started having to uh, really start to do work on myself because... Without with, without drugs, I was still the same asshole. Like, in early recovery, I was still an asshole. Like, I was really opinionated. I didn't... Uh, I, I was still a, a rough-around-the-edges kind of person. Um, 
so I started doing work on my behaviors because that's that was really everything uh, that was beyond or underlying um, my addiction was the behaviors and the thoughts and um, the feelings. Uh, so I totally lost my train of thought for a second. Um, so one of the biggest things I learned in early recovery and that I've, I've held with me since then is that um, I have a, like, I have a David problem and drugs are just a symptom of that. For the longest time, I was running off the idea that, oh, I just had the drug problem. Like, I, I just have this drug problem or this alcohol problem. And it really wasn't the case. Like, I really have a David problem. I have a disconnect between my emotions and my thoughts and my actions, um, that causes me to act out in ways where I want what I want when I want it. And that's how my addiction manifests itself into its life, into my life. Um, uh, because I won't like the way I'm feeling, so I'll get an idea, and then it'll immediately lead to my actions. But that that is so far beyond just drug use um, now. Um, it's hard to really quantify it into words. Um, I, w I was... I was born this way. Like, it, it, I was just, I came off the assembly line with a crossed wire, and it caused me to go down the path I went. Like, I'm not, I, I don't blame my parents. I don't blame the schools. I don't blame this or that. Like, I was responsible for everything that I did throughout my addiction. And now I was responsible for doing the work to clean up the wreckage of my past. So I, I was hitting meetings constantly. Uh, early in recovery, I signed up for culinary school. I was going to school every day. Um, managed to graduate that. Uh, top of my class with a 4.0, which I had never done before. And like I was applying these, these principles that I was learning through recovery to my life. I was showing up early. I was staying late. I was um, asking for help. I was actually listening to the help when it when it was um, provided to me, when it was like offered to me. Um, and re recovery has given me this ability to really stop reacting to everything that's happening in my life and take some time to uh, process everything, process my feelings, process my thoughts and respond in a healthy manner instead of being such an impulsive and compulsive um, individual. Um, because it had gotten to the point with my addiction that I was using just out of it, it was almost like 
a program. Like, it's just what I did. It was just what I had been doing for 14 years of my life, and I, I couldn't stop. Like, even though I was homeless, I was uh, living a completely uh, criminal lifestyle with no future, and I just felt like absolutely nothing. Like, that was the biggest part of, like, my addiction, is I just felt so alone in the world. And coming into recovery was just the exact opposite of that, is that I didn't have to be alone anymore. Uh, there were there were people out there that were willing to help and be a part of my life and help guide me in this process towards these principles, towards these uh, healthy um, life goals and techniques and tools to use in my life, like a network, like um, spiritual principles, um, really questioning um, my behaviors and really keeping me accountable for everything that was going on in my life. Um, because that's where, that's where it all, everything in recovery, like in these meetings, I'll go to a meeting for an hour. Like, uh, those meetings are actually a, a small part of recovery. Uh, my recovery for the majority of it is outside of these meetings. The majority of my life is outside of meetings. Like these meetings are great. Having a, having a sponsor is great. Um, but if I'm not being held accountable, first of all, with myself, like being vigilant of my own thinking, my own behaviors. Um, and if I don't have a, a network of people to keep me accountable, then it's easy to slip back into those, those really like dark thinking, dark feeling, um, ways of life that ultimately always led to drugs. Um, and early in recovery, it was difficult, but as time has gone by, um, the, that thinking of, um, loneliness and basically never being good enough or, I was different than everybody else started to change and like I found a family in recovery. Um, I've found friends that I never really probably would have talked to in active addiction. Like a lot of these people were probably not very nice people and I was probably not a very nice person. I mean, I know I was not a nice person through addiction, but I gave myself the chance to learn and remain teachable. Like that's the biggest thing is really just having an open-minded approach to recovery and just letting myself get changed by others um, because that is completely the opposite of my addiction. In my addiction, I wasn't willing to be changed by anybody. Nobody's opinion was going to matter to me. Nobody's life was going to matter to me. Um, I was going to do what I was going to do and fuck you if you were in my way and your opinion just didn't matter and now so many so many people's lives and opinions matter because I know that in recovery all these people for the most part have my best interests at heart and I've just taken it a day at a time 
giving myself the opportunity to learn from every day, really take something out of every day and move forward instead of dwelling on a lot of the stuff in my past. Um, I've gotten to look at a lot of like the, my, like my painful moments in life and what was my part in them? How did it affect me? Um, and how I can grow from it and not really like hold on to those resentments or, um, really negative aspects of my life that like all that baggage, I really carried it for a long time and coming into recovery, I got to let go of some of that baggage, um, and leave it in the past because I, I can't change it, but I can grow from it. And, um, I've started to become a service to others. Like I, um, I started being that voice for other people. I've gotten to do stuff like this, like, uh, be part of, of, uh, a voice of hope and experience for other addicts to show that no matter what you can recover and no matter what, um, you've been through, there's always a chance to redeem yourself and become a different person if you're willing to do the work. And for the first time in my life, like through recovery, I'm willing to do the work. And the work is just, it, the dividends that it's paying are unbelievable. Like I have a stable life. I have stable relationships. I have stable friendships. I've been employed for over five years straight, I've graduated from a, a college, um, and it's just amazing what recovery has afforded me, just being able to take people's suggestions and really allow uh, a program or uh, principles to implement a new way of life for me. And that's like it. It's hard to quantify like where like the, the, the sky is the limit in my opinion. Um, as long as I'm willing to do the work and stay vigilant on my behaviors and, um, really just stay open-minded in this process and let life be life, uh, and live life on life's terms. And, not necessarily think that everything is happening to me because not everything is happening to me. A lot of things are just happening around me. The things in life uh, aren't going to get better. Uh, I'm going to lose relationships. People are going to die. Pets are going to die. Um, all those things, the life and life term things are going to happen and they're not going to get better. They're not going to change. All I can do is learn to get better with those things, to change with those things. And um, no matter what, like there's there's no reason to pick up a drink or a drug. Like none of those things ever helped me before. They didn't help me get through any of those feelings, any of those hardships, any of those um, difficulties in life. Drugs and alcohol never helped. All they did was ever all they ever did was make things worse. And it took a lot of work 
and a lot of time looking at that stuff, reflecting, digging in, and um, really scraping out those old wounds and getting out that old dead tissue that I'd been just letting fester and linger for years upon years um, to really start healing and growing and becoming a new person. And um, if I have any advice for anybody who's like, out there, it's really um, start investing in yourself. Like we invested in drugs and alcohol for so long, and not investing in ourselves. That once you start doing that, you just don't know like where it's going to take you and like what you're capable of. Um, through a process of like just saying, "Oh God, this is going to sound so cliche." Just saying no to drugs. <laughs> I'm, so, I'm so mad I just said that. Oh, God, that was gross. I literally just pulled dare just channeled through me. Um, <laughs> um, but honestly, that it, it's the case. Just like not seeing drugs and alcohol as um, an option because it's not an option anymore. It's not an option in my life. Because there, it's a dead end, and it's just gonna, it's gonna lead down that rabbit hole to nothing. And uh, like, I, I, I'm tired. I'm, I'm not gonna dig that hole anymore. And uh, yeah, that's, I guess that's all I got. Um, I hope I said something worthwhile. Um, all right. So follow-up questions yes so you mentioned that you grew up with four sisters mm-hmm. and your parents you know you made you know, your mother sounded somewhat like a, a hippie yes. flower child and 100 you said your your father was absent much mm-hmm. of the time mm-hmm. now do you believe that this um upbringing was a possible you know um jumpstart into you know behaviors and addiction in the future definitely um 100 percent uh so all these kids had were these brady bunch families and i was the adams family and like i just i was so hateful and it was just the seeds of rebellion uh in me that ultimately just led me to buck authority buck uh, my parents uh, really just I, I wanted to be the bad kid yeah like so yeah 100% like having a difficult upbringing really started a lot of those really bad feelings that uh, I wanted to mask like drugs were the mask for um having for abandonment issues they were the mask for um insecurities inadequacies um daddy issues bottom line 100 percent. like it, it was daddy issues that i didn't know how to cope with and nobody was helping me cope with uh but drugs made me numb to those abandonment issues and so yeah 100 percent. my up- upbringing was uh, I want to like I want to say a catalyst, but like I don't want to use it as a cop out because I was no, no. I was still responsible. 
that's true, but there are external forces oh, yeah. that mm-hmm. yeah, shape who we are. Mm-hmm. And that was certainly some of them. And uh, how is your relationship with your family today? Oh, my uh, relationship with my family is great. Um, uh, my All my sisters will actually talk to me. In my last few years of using, they wouldn't allow me anywhere near their kids. Uh, I wasn't welcome for holidays or anything like that. Um, still haven't spoken to my father. Haven't haven't seen my father in 11 years. But um, my relationship with all my sisters has actually come back. It took about about four years for my one sister to talk to me. She wouldn't. She still wasn't convinced. And that's that's the. Uh, a price I had to pay for addiction. Like I had to stay out of my nieces and nephews and my sister's lives and allow her to process that, um, all that hurt and pain that I, that I caused the family. And I, I had to deal with it. There was nothing I could do. I just had to be patient and wait four years of staying clean for her to, start like begin to come around to the idea that maybe uh, this was going to be different mm-hmm. we'll save that question for last um no. okay a little, little little lighter here um so you mentioned the phrase a fish in the bowl doesn't know it's wet oh god yeah so you know does the hamster in the cage not know it's dry? Does the hamster in the cage not know that it's dry? Um, I'm going to have to say, yeah, the hamster in the cage does not know that it's dry. So these aren't sentient no. life forms. I mean, they are to... Do a, we know we're dry? Do we know that we're dry? Well, I'm of the mindset that water isn't wet. Water makes things wet like you know mm. like you it's mm. it's just water like wet is a reaction wet is a reaction to what water is be like some people say like oh water is wet and i'm like no water is just water it can't be wet that's just what it is it makes other things wet like water can never be dry so it's always water but like in order for something to be wet it has to be dry at some point in its existence it's really like the yin and the yang of things and mm. um like and oh god does do fish see water like we can't see air can they see water it's a good question it's a very good question this might be something you need to dive deeper into know, you know I, they're the, the rabbit hole of the internet so you mentioned um you know going to kind of a counseling facility is your first mm-hmm. step in the recovery process. Uh, mm-hmm. That was actually my second place I've ever went to was that, that place. Nice. Um, like, I guess it was nice. I mean, not, you know, each way is unique yes. and beneficial to everyone. And there isn't a right or wrong way mm-hmm. for me. It was not the right way. Yes. But, has there been any other sorts of uh, outside, you know, treatment, different types of help along the way? Yes, actually, which I sort of, I, I really, 
I don't know how I forgot this in the telling. Um, one of my other uh, symptoms of addiction was uh, self-harm. Like, I was uh, a cutter for uh, a period of time, and predominantly I was a burner. Um, mm. I liked that control over my pain. And through that, like, I, I also... Like, throughout my life, I've, I've struggled with depression. I struggled with, um, uh, no, I have, I've suffered from night terrors for a lot of my life. And um, there have been a couple suicide attempts in my past. And so I would go to emergency rooms in times of crisis, and I would be put into uh psychological facilities so that that was also um a part of my story which i don't know how i like i didn't talk about that um but now i am uh so yeah there were definitely psych wards um and there were um fellowship meetings brought into those facilities so i was definitely uh exposed to different fellowships coming in to the hospitals and the institutions, um, trying to bring a message of hope and recovery to, uh, potential sick and suffering addicts. Obviously I was in a psych ward, so there was more of a mental, emotional aspect to it there, but a lot of those, a very common theme for addicts is dual diagnosis, which is sometimes talked about and sometimes not talked about. Um, but, um, like I said, like I, I, I talked a lot about, uh, them, the psycho, psychosocial, uh, aspect to recovery. Like it's very emotional based. It's very psychologically based. Um, so naturally, like depression and drugs tend to go hand in hand. Like people need to be, some people need to be medicated, um, and a lot of us take it upon ourselves to self-medicate for a long time, and it really tends to compound uh, the issue, the problem, and um, it never helped me. So, yeah. Okay. What was the main addiction that manifested itself upon entering recovery? Ooh. Um, the other symptoms of addiction. Uh, just the main one. What, main one. What really? Probably sex. Sex. Okay. Sex was probably number one. Um, certainly, like I've I've dabbled in all of them. Definitely the the uh, retail therapy. Mm. Hundred like, percent, nicotine, caffeine. Ni- oh, nicotine and caffeine. Oh yeah, Red Bulls, cigarettes. Like at one that point, first year. Oh yeah, first year I was smoking probably two packs a day, uh, drinking at l- least twenty four ounces of Red Bull a day. Just twenty four, at least plus coffee and all mm-hmm. these other things. Um, I mean that's a lot. That's a, it is a lot. It's three like three cans of Red Bull a day. And uh, staying up to all sorts of crazy hours, um, but doing it clean. Like, uh, did it? Did I have a, a energy drink addiction? Did that rear its ugly head? Yes, hundred percent. Luckily, I didn't get a kidney stone. 
Um, but yeah, sex was a huge part of it. Um, because I like, I wanted to feel, I wanted to feel different. Like I wanted, I still wanted that high. I wanted those, uh, those chemicals in my brain, that norepinephrine, the adrenaline, the, the dopamine, the serotonin. I still craved those things in my brain. Uh, the happy chemicals. Mm-hmm. I, I wanted those in my life and I knew sex, I like was going to do that. So yeah, sex was certainly, a uh, an outlet, um, and un, and it became an unhealthy, unmanageable outlet, um, in my life. Um, so yes, sex, retail, gambling, uh, energy drinks, nicotine. Yeah. I, yeah. I exhibited all of them for at least some point in time. All right. I'm going to save the, uh, the question about the PI for offline. Um, we'll bring that up later. Oh, the P. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. We'll, yeah. we'll just fair, bring that off enough. later. Yeah, We're starting to go a little over. Uh, yeah, getting a little long in the But you know, I'm seeing that you're wearing a Breakfast Club shirt today. Oh God, yes. this is my last yes. question. Um, right. Do you identify with John Bender? Oh God, I'm. I'm just seeing I'm, some parallels here. You're. Oh, I hate you right now. I I guess I deserve it for uh, karmic reasons. That you would bring that up. Uh, Didn't he get you. a burn mark on him? Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes, he did. Yes, for spilling paint in the garage. His, it's yeah, been a little his, while his, since his I've seen the movie. burned him with a cigar. Uh, yes, and honestly, uh, if any of the uh, Brat Pack ever listen to this, yes, you were. Uh, John Bender was a huge inspiration to me. Ah. <laughs> uh, like my whole style, like I was, a, I was an aggressive kid. Like I want, like I said, fuck you to teachers. Um, but you're sensitive on the inside. But I exactly like John Bender was the badass with the heart of gold, and that's who I, that's who I wanted to be. I looked up to him. Like I, I looked up to those. He was probably the first one uh, amongst many. Like those those characters that I wanted to be. Like the 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 Bart Simpsons, the Zach Morrises. Uh, Zach Morris was a dick. He was a dick. Yeah, Zach Morris is trash. Yeah, we all trash know that. human. Trash human. But like, occasionally he was like the heart of gold guy. Was he? Occasionally, occasionally he was. was. He? Bart Simpson certainly was. John Bender was like. Well, Zach Morris is very questionable. I okay. Okay. I read an article okay. recently. Like I don't know. Changed my opinion about Saved by the Bell. Fair enough. Totally changed my Fair opinion. Fair enough. Um. But yeah, like I, I always, ha- I and really there were these mask type characters, these really like duality based characters where they like they wanted to put off this image of being like so tough and so strong, uh, while on the inside they were like kind of like crumbling, mm-hmm. uh, like they were really in turmoil on the inside. And we see that a lot in life. I mean, like, look at Robin Williams. Robin Williams yeah. was struggling with depression and drug use for many years. But he, like, on the outside, a lot of people wouldn't have seen that. Like, he was always so happy and making people laugh. Um, but it, it's, we, we're, we're humans. Like, mm-hmm. we, we want to put on an image that everything's okay. Um, when sometimes it's not. And yes, my, my breakfast club, John Bender... Uh, badass 
attitude was certainly my mask for a long time, and he was an influence. So thank you, Judd Nelson, I for, myself for the influence on him. Seeing that You're right there. Kind of a dick. Yeah, sorry. Um, so, uh, yeah, I think um, that brings us to the end. Yeah, it's been a, it's been a pleasure and an honor. Yeah. Uh, everybody, stay clean out there. Uh, thanks for listening. Uh, so, uh, we would like to thank David for sharing his experience, strength, and hope today. Here at Podcast Recovery, we are aiming to expand the scope of support for recovering addicts. Accessibility and convenience of helpful services is paramount to combating addiction. We work to bring the message of recovery to every addict, wherever and whenever it is needed. We believe that a powerful voice of recovery should be obtainable, practical, and at the touch of a button. Every addict deserves to hear a message of hope and podcast recovery is here to provide it. Don't forget to uh, follow us on Facebook mm-hmm. and Twitter, and uh, don't forget to visit us at podcastrecovery.com. Absolutely. Give us your give us your likes, give us your follows, give us your shares. And yeah, yeah. So until next time. Yep. Thanks for joining us. <laughs>